Sports fans of all ages, faces, and places from every stadium, arena, and auditorium all over the world. May I have your attention, please? Well, time's coming when we're going to have to handy up. Handy up and kick in like men. Like men! It is now time to bring to your listening ears, hearts, and minds a sports podcast named Wendell's World in Sports with the one and only Wendell Wallace. Tell him how you feel. A podcast that gives you strong, passionate, unapologetic, uncompromised thoughts and opinions about the everyday happenings in the NFL. And college football to the NBA in my Georgetown Hoyas. Giannis fires one down at an exclamation point for Milwaukee. To any other sporting news of the day. And now, introducing the man whose love of sports was born and bred on the greatest Muhammad Ali, Lynn Baez, Magic Johnson, Bernard King, and Eric Dickerson, Wendell Wallace. Good morning, good evening, bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselle, je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports, que pasa mi amigos, mi amo Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports, shalom, matalam aleikum, konnichiwa, namaste, all that good stuff, welcome to Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us, a lot of great things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports, anywhere where you're listening to this podcast, do me a favor, I heart iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, download, subscribe, rate, review, follow, most importantly though, enjoy Wendell's World of Sports, the most unique, entertaining, thought-provoking sports talk podcast. If you could do that for me, I would be the happiest human being walking the face of the earth. You would know as soon as you click that download, soon as you click that subscribe, soon as you click that follow, soon as you did all those things on either Apple or iTunes, whatever, you would know at that at that very moment that you have just contributed to the most happiest human being walking the face of the earth. Now, if that doesn't move you, if that doesn't groove you, if that doesn't inspire you, I don't know what will. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, Bacon, man, Bacon. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. I'm excited about this podcast. I'm going to save the energy about my Halle Berry, about my Layla Roshan, about my um, Selma Hayek, about my Monica Bellucci, the NBA, the love of my life when it comes to sports. going to save that for the end of the podcast. I am uh, recording this on a Wednesday afternoon or Wednesday mid-morning. So last night I had the opportunity to see Denver and the Los Angeles Lakers. Had the opportunity to see the Phoenix Suns and the uh, Golden State Warriors. Look, way too early for me to be sitting there talking about I can't believe Kevin Durant went 7 for 21. He's old. He's washed up. He's not going to have the same impact that we thought he was going to have. I'm not going to go there and start banging on Anthony Davis. He's a bum. He's inconsistent. I can't believe this, this, that, and the other. How the man can score zero points in the second half. The Lakers are done because we need Davis, and Davis isn't getting it done, and this, that, and the other, and LeBron is on the minute restrictions, and if Davis is going to play like that, when will all of us sudden 28 to 30 minutes per game which Darvin Ham the coach of the Lakers is going to start increasing that because of the inconsistency of Anthony Davis before I get into any of that stuff I'm going to wait a little bit longer than just one game so Nikola Jokic already sewing up his third MVP after the performance that he had last night slow down man slow down there's a lot of NBA talk to be there's a lot of NBA season to be played the race has just begun 
We don't sit there and determine who's going to be winning the Boston Marathon when the gun starts. It takes a long time. It takes a long journey. We don't decide who's going to win the Indy 500 or the Daytona 500 after a half a lap. So come on now. A lot of, lot of stuff to get down on and describe with the NBA before we start kind of doing that type of stuff. So I'm just happy. I'm just glad. And again, it's almost like football. It's almost like the NFL, right? Remember when I told you, hey, don't worry about the four to six weeks, the first four to six weeks of the NFL, R-E-L-A-X, right? Because nothing is solved. Nothing is secure. Nothing is come to fruition when it comes to teams, good or bad, in the first four to six games. All right, we have to have the season play out a little bit more. So if we're going to be doing that for 17 games in the in the NFL, what do you think I'm going to be saying about 82 games in the NBA? Slow down. So for those who are yelling, for all the Laker fans who are yelling and screaming, I can't believe Anthony Davis again coming up short. Here was a guy who was supposed to be dedicating himself in the offseason to getting stronger and to getting healthier and to getting better and this, that, and the other. And he comes out after scoring 17 points in the first half and puts up zero while Nikola Jokic is dominating him again. I can't believe. Slow down. Season just started, man. Season just started. I don't want to hear it. Don't want to hear it. Now, if he's still doing this after 54, 60 games, yeah, we'll go ahead and we'll start having that conversation about what the hell's going on with Anthony Davis. But uh, after one game, no. And I bet you next game, I bet you game number two, he's going to have like 30-something and 15, 16 rebounds. But that's the problem with Anthony Davis. It's his inconsistency. His consistency is inconsistency. Whoa. Got to save that for the final segment of my podcast. I'm sorry. Let me go ahead and let me start with the NFL because the game of the season so far was played on Sunday night, this past Sunday night between the Philadelphia Eagles and the Miami Dolphins, Philadelphia winning the game 31-17. You know what this game reminded me of? If I could put it into the context of another sport when I was watching this, this was almost similar to, say for instance, the Philadelphia Eagles being Julio Cesar Chavez and the Miami Dolphins being Meldrick Taylor. The first time they met, remember? And the reason why I'm saying this is because you're going to be saying, wait a minute, Meldrick Taylor was dominating the entire fight for the most part after, I don't know, eight or nine rounds, and then all of a sudden Richard Steele, who's being paid by uh, Don King, with Julio Cesar Chavez being Don King's promoter, stepping in and calling off that fight with one or two seconds left to go in the final round, securing that Julio Cesar Chavez continued his unbeaten streak and becoming a god, or still being a god, in his country of Colombia, right? So um, here, here, here's what I'm talking about with this, though. When I, when I make the comparison between the Philadelphia Eagles playing the Miami Dolphins on Sunday night to Julio Cesar Chavez fighting Meldrick Taylor that first night in Las Vegas a little while ago, it was a situation where, look, man, the Taylor got off to a quick start, but what started to slow him down? The body punches, the shots, the, 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 the Chavez throughout the fight started to wear Taylor down. Heavy hands, a thick head from Chavez started to take the speed, started to take the oof, started to take the pizzazz, started to take the started to take that 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 athleticism away. Punch after punch after eight rounds, nine rounds, ten rounds. Almost like, if I could even go a little bit further, Rocky Marciano fighting Edric Charles. 
constantly wearing him down, wearing him down, hitting him in the shoulder, hitting him in the chest, hitting him in the thigh, hitting him in the solar plexus, hitting him in the in the stomach. After a while, that kind of wore Edric Charles down just like it wore Meldrick Taylor down. And it was similar to what the Philadelphia Eagles did to the Miami Dolphins. It was a situation where you were playing a team that was physical, you were playing a team that was tough, you were playing a team that was going to be violent, you were going to be playing a team in the Philadelphia Eagles that had all of those things against a team like the Miami Dolphins who rely not just, I mean their defense is, is, is strong despite some of the injuries, but the fact that the, the Miami Dolphins, I wouldn't say fluff, and I wouldn't say puff, and I wouldn't say soft, and I wouldn't say um, a situation where they're trying to use trickery to win games. But when you take a look at that game, it was a situation where the more physical team, the more dominant team, the stronger team, the tougher team, was clearly the Philadelphia Eagles. When you take a look at every part of that team compared to the Miami Dolphins, and yet with the Philadelphia Eagles, if you take a look at that team compared to most of the other teams in the NFL, and you take a look at quarterback, you take a look at offensive line, you take a look at defensive line, you take a look at wide receiver, there's not a better combination cornerbacks, um, uh, 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 linebackers. There's not a tougher, stronger, uh, better team than the Philadelphia Eagles. You have someone like a Jalen Hurts, who I think is the second most imposing quarterback in the league behind Josh Allen. You have an offensive line that is considered very physical. You have that defensive line for the Philadelphia Eagles that's very physical. You have a wide receiver in A.J. Brown who's fit in the Debu Samuels mode who is very physical. So up and down the line for the Philadelphia Eagles, they ain't going to trick you. They ain't going to try to out-scheme you. They're not going to try to use trickery. They're just going to say, look, we're going to line up. We're going to punch you in the mouth. We're going to punch you in the ribs. We're going to punch you in the legs. We're going to punch you in the arms. We're going to punch you in the chest. And then after four quarters let's see where you're standing let's see if you're standing and I think that's the game plan I think that's the right game plan I think that's the proper game plan for the Philadelphia Eagles to uh, use now the game against Miami it wasn't perfect but it was encouraging coming off of their loss against the New York Jets when their competition right now is the San Francisco 49ers who are flailing a little bit with their second loss in a row on Monday night to the Minnesota Vikings but for the Eagles Jalen Hurts they threw a pick six interception in the second quarter, but he finished 23 of 31, 279 yards and two touchdowns. A.J. Brown was the offensive star of the game. When you're speaking about him catching 10 passes on 15 targets for 137 yards and one touchdown, the defense made Miami one-dimensional on offense, held them to 12 first downs on 48 total plays and 244 yards of total offense. Again, as I mentioned before, and I'm going to mention this over and over, Philadelphia is the most physical, imposing team in the league, man, when you speak about some of the guys that they've got. When you speak about the defensive line that includes Fletcher Cox, Hassan Reddick, Jordan Davis, Josh Sweat, Jalen Carter, these guys are going to be tough. To, excuse me, these guys are going to be tough to beat. These guys are going to be extremely tough to beat. Now, it's going to be a situation where at the quarterback position, I mentioned before, Jalen Hurts is not the same quarterback that he was in terms of the production that he had because I think that's in part of the other teams, the other defensive coordinators for the other teams kind of seeing film, getting an idea on Hurts. He had written a book in terms of, okay, this is what we do. When he came in 
Last uh, season, it was kind of new. The book had not been written. We're still trying to figure out this guy. We're still trying to learn this guy. We're still trying to find the tendencies of this guy. Now, those things have been revealed. Now, we have more of an education of what Jalen Hurts is all about. So because of that, I think the productivity and the effectiveness that he had last season is not going to be reduplicated this season in terms of the fact that he's already thrown more interceptions this season. In fact, he surpassed his interception total um, last week for the entire season that he had the, um, the season before. But that doesn't mean, as I mentioned in my last podcast, that Jalen Hurts all of a sudden is going to fall off a cliff, that Jalen Hurts, it was a mistake for him to sign that contract. In fact, that Jalen Hurts, even with the new data, even with new ways, even with um, uh, new ways to uh, stop him, to slow him down or whatever, to be effective against him, that doesn't automatically mean that Jalen Hurts is going to fall off a cliff. I still think that even with the new data, even with the new information, that Jalen Hurts is a top six, seven quarterback in the league. So the Philadelphia Eagles, again, starting picking up right where they left off after losing to the um, New York Jets, um, improve their uh, record. And again, with San Francisco losing, Brock Purdy, you know there were some situations where they were speaking about Brock Purdy being the MVP of the league. Based on what? Based on what? So they lose again to the San Francisco 49ers. They're in a little bit of a rut. Now, again, I'm not saying that Brock Purdy needs to be benched. I'm not saying that people all of a sudden should be jumping off the Brock Purdy bandwagon. But I think that maybe for some of those who thought that Brock Purdy was with the reason why or one of the main reasons why the San Francisco were as dom- was as dominant as they were the first part of the season or the first when, when San Francisco was doing the thing, I think you need to slow down a little bit. These 49ers still have this guy named Christian McCaffrey who was uh, banged up, who wasn't 100% against Minnesota. Yeah, he's pretty good. You also have a guy in Debu Samuels. You also have a guy in George Kittle. You also have a strong defense. So there's a lot of parts around Brock Purdy for him to be able to do what he does, similar to uh, Jalen Hurts. When you speak about the weapons that he had from the tie-in and from the wide receiver position, the running game was still potent. Maybe not on the same consistent basis as last season, but still it's there for Hurts to use. And a situation, again, where you have that physical, tough offensive line. How many times in that game against Miami where it's just like, fuck it, fourth and one, screw it. What yard line are we on? Really doesn't matter. What side of the field are we on? Really doesn't matter. The tush push, (laughs) let's go. Who's going to stop that? Miami couldn't stop that. Miami couldn't do anything about that. But don't worry, there's no one else in the league that can. I don't think the Cleveland Browns could. I don't think the San Francisco 49ers could. You can name any of the top defensive lines in the league. I don't think the New York Jets could in terms of stopping that fourth and one, stopping that quarterback sneak that the uh, Philadelphia Eagles do. So, look, man, the Philadelphia Eagles, very impressive in that game. What should we take away from the Miami Dolphins? Now, when you have injuries along the offensive line, it's going to become a potential problem, especially when you're playing the game against a team as physical as Philadelphia, where you didn't have left tackle to run Armstead and center Connor Williams, and they lost Isaiah Wynn early in the uh, game. So it was a situation where I thought that uh, coach, uh, that the, the, the coach from Miami was trying to out-scheme, had to out-scheme the Philadelphia Eagles, where Philadelphia can say, hey, look, this is what we're going to do come and try and stop it, uh, Coach McDaniels had to try to get a little bit tricky. When that running game didn't happen on a consistent basis for Miami, then it put a lot of the 
um, it put a lot of the responsibility on Tua Tunga Vailoa. And while Tua has been impressive so far this season, he does not have the type of game that's going to put him in the same position as a Patrick Mahomes or one of the elite quarterbacks to say, okay, we don't have a running game. Let's go out and win it through the passing game. Um, Tua is not at that level yet. I don't think Tua could ever get at that level. But, you know, you talk about the lack of offensive line play, play being a major role because of injuries. In that game against Philadelphia, first 15 plays only um, got them 21 yards before they pieced together a touchdown drive going into halftime. Um, you know, when you're speaking about on 32 attempts from um, Tua, averaging only 5.5, yeah, he went 23 of 32 for 216 yards, one touchdown, one interception, but, you know, he struggled. If you take a look at next-gen stats, he struggled when he faced pressure, completed 5 of 10 uh, pressured passes for 20 yards and an interception, and when he wasn't pressured, he completed almost 82% of his passes for almost 9 yards attempt in those situations. So, Long term, with the Miami Dolphins, it'll be interesting to see where they go if the offensive line does not get right. Those guys who were injured do not return by the end of the season. The most impressive performance, though, when you want to be speaking about the NFL, was the Baltimore Ravens beating up on the Detroit Lions 38-6. Wow! Led 28 to nothing in halftime. The offense had 17 first downs on their first 37 plays in the half. Lamar Jackson on first down in the first half against the Lions base defense. He went 7 for 8, 144. That's 18 yards per attempt for the game. Lamar went 21 of 27, 357 yards, three touchdowns. He also ran the ball for 36 yards. How about that? Oh, to a tongue of Vailoa, Jalen Hurts, Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes to make some room in terms when you're speaking about the MVP because there's a guy named Lamar Jackson that's a coming. Look, I don't know exactly what got into Lamar Jackson. I don't know how much we should take away from this, but the way that the Baltimore Ravens played on this past Sunday, that's a team that's going to win a Super Bowl if they're going to play at that level. Now, the question is, are they going to be coming close to that level? We don't expect, I don't expect, you shouldn't expect the Baltimore Ravens to be playing at that level for the entire season. That was one of those games where it was extraordinary, the performance that they put on against a for real Detroit Lion team. Now, we also have to then go back and ask, well, how real is Detroit in this situation? This is a team that's on the up and coming what 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 again let's revisit when we're speaking about Detroit let's revisit the expectations that they have after a game like this now look everybody's going to have a bad game I don't care who you are I don't care if you're the defending champions I don't care if you're a dynasty in the making I don't care everybody's going to have a bad game or two in the NFL so what I'm taking away from this when I swing it over to the the uh, Detroit Lions I'm not saying, oh my goodness, Lions are phonies, Lions are fraud, they're not living up. I'm not saying any of that. But what I'm saying is, based on this performance, let's, again, revisit what the expectations are for the Detroit Lions. If we need to move them, if we need to change them, if we need to keep it in place, if you're going to say that the Detroit Lions are still one of the best teams in the NFC, I'm going to still buy that. But after that performance... Are we going to say that the Detroit Lions are ready to compete with the San Francisco 49ers, even though San Francisco did lose two games in a row, have lost two games in a row, but 
in the totality of this league, in the totality of the division, in the conference, in the teams, and the expectations, and and the body of work and such, when you take in the, again, the totality of the 49ers and the Philadelphia Eagles, are the Detroit Lions, are they, are you comfortable saying that they belong on that level based on the performance of what they gave against the Baltimore Ravens? I'm going to need to see more evidence of Detroit playing against some of the elite teams in the NFL before I say they're, they, they are true contenders to be able to compete, to be able to say to, to play on the same level consistently as the elite teams in the NFC, which are right now the San Francisco 49ers and, and the Philadelphia Eagles. And yes, I know that the 49ers lost, and I know that they've lost two games in a row. I'm still not going to uh, sit up there and, and, and start doubting or start having second thoughts about my feelings and thoughts about how strong the San Francisco 49ers are as a team and their expectations of what they should be shooting for. But getting back to the Baltimore Ravens, getting back to Lamar Jackson, one of the things that uh, I saw, one of the things that uh, I saw on the stat sheet that made me go, hmm, well, ain't that interesting? Jackson only ran for 36 yards. Jackson, Lamar, we're starting to see the maturation of Lamar Jackson as an NFL quarterback. Four of the seven games this season, Jackson has ran less than 10 times a game, right? His longest run of the season so far has been 26 yards. And he's run for over 60 yards only two times. He's ran for 100 yards only once. Now, what were we, what were we speaking about with Lamar Jackson all the time? Oh, Lamar Jackson, dual-threat quarterback. Lamar Jackson, um, uber-athleticism. Lamar Jackson, otherworldly athleticism at the quarterback position. Lamar Jackson, if, he, if the first read is canceled, the second read is canceled, fuck it, just take off, use your athleticism, use your running ability, right? Isn't that what we were preaching, right? Isn't that what made Lamar Jackson special? Isn't that what made Lamar Jackson the 2019 MVP isn't that what Lamar Jackson is known for his athleticism his ability to leave the pocket his ability not just to scramble but to have designed running plays for him to be effective when you take a look at the rushing yardists the rushing leaders you expect to see Lamar Jackson for the Baltimore Ravens when we're speaking about the leading rushers in the division in the conference in the league we expect to see from the quarterback position, Lamar Jackson head and shoulders above every other quarterback and being supplanted there with court, with the other running backs when we speak about yardage and yardage gain and stuff. And what do we say? What did I say? The maturation of Lamar Jackson for him to when he gets older and you've seen with all the injuries, Lamar Jackson is not the same guy that he was two or three years ago from an athletic standpoint. All of a sudden now, I've seen Lamar Jackson get caught. I've seen Lamar Jackson get tackled where two or three years ago, that didn't happen. Where two or three years ago, Lamar Jackson was going to juke and keep going, that Lamar Jackson was going to uh, get to the corner and keep going. Now we've seen Lamar Jackson Lamar Jackson being more judicious and him getting out of bounds and him sliding his stuff. The maturation of an NFL quarterback. But here's also what I've seen Lamar Jackson have. Patience in the pocket this season. I've seen Lamar Jackson be more of a standard QB. I've seen him be more of a classic QB while still having the ability to make plays with athleticism from the pocket. 
So as his athleticism wanes through age and, in, and injuries and such, the pocket presence playing the classic quarterback style is going to become more imperative for Lamar Jackson to master. And so far in his journey toward that, he's doing a fabulous job. He's doing a masterful job. So while he still has some, while he still has some juice left from the Lamar of, of younger, when he needs it, his maturation to where he's now um, um, really starting to learn the offense from the new offensive coordinator, the um, coordinator who was at Georgia last year. He's come, Todd Munkin, who's come in and really put uh, Jackson in advantageous positions for him to uh, do well. I'm interested to see what's going on with the Baltimore Ravens. Odell Beckham Jr., he's getting into the frame. Mark Andrews has always been a favorite tight end uh, um, uh, player for uh, Lamar. So moving forward, I'm really interested to see exactly what the uh, Baltimore Ravens are going to be doing. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Exactly what's going on with the Buffalo Bills? What's happening with the Buffalo Bills? Why are Buffalo? Why 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 are the Bills making look making me sound foolish, making me look foolish? I can do that well enough. You can give me any topic, you can give me any subject, you can give me anything, and I can make myself look foolish. I don't need the Bills going out and proving me wrong in terms of a couple of weeks ago. When I said that the Buffalo Bills were the best team in the NFL after that beat down 48-20 over Miami. Oops. <laughs> I came out there, man, my chest was sticking out, my head was hell high, I was prancing, I was dancing, I was romancing, I was doing all that stuff, man, getting on the microphone and talking about my Buffalo, my Buffalo Bills, my Washington Commanders, not going to even mention them, but the uh, Buffalo Bills, oh, the Buffalo Bills, hot take, hot take coming, hot like butter, hot knife through butter, y'all, we're not speaking about the Buffalo Bills, they beat the uh, Miami Dolphins 48-20, to Josh Allen had a whale of a game, and I was sitting up there talking about, yep, the Buffalo Bills, sitting up there at 4-1, they're the best team in the NFL, Josh Allen has been the M- MVP of the first month of the NFL, but what have I said as always, what have I kept saying, what have I kept preaching, what have I kept teaching, R-E-L-A-X, don't take anything in too high of an account when we're speaking about the first four or five weeks of the NFL season. Just because the Bills were the best team after the month of September doesn't mean that they're going to be the best team at the end of October. Just because Josh Allen was the best player at the end of September doesn't mean that he's going to be the best player at the end of October. And right now, Josh Allen and the Buffalo Bills are trying to um, get me right on this one. Because even though I said, look, man, the Buffalo Bills, best team in the NFL, Josh Allen, MVP of the league, I didn't say that that was going to be sustainable in terms of they're going to go 16-1 and and Josh Allen was going to supplant Patrick Mahomes as the best quarterback in the NFL. If you were starting a draft tomorrow and you had to uh, pick a player, which one would it be that all of a sudden it would be Josh Allen on a unanimous basis over Patrick Mahomes? I didn't say that. But what I was saying was the fact that in a league where there is no dominant team, in a league where there is no a dynasty being built, there is no dynasty on the horizon based on what I saw the first four, five, six weeks of the season, that yes, I was very comfortable in saying that the Buffalo Bills were the best team in the NFL at that point, and Josh Allen at that point in the season was the best player in the league. Since then, they have stunk. They have stunk out loud. They went to London. 
lost to the Jacksonville Jaguars. They came back, barely beat the New York Giants with Tyrod Taylor as their quarterback at home. Well, the Giants quarterback, Tyrod Taylor, they beat that squad at home. Needed a blown call in the fourth quarter um, on a goal line stand to get that done and, and some miscommunication and some ineptitude by the Giants at the end of the first half for the Bills to escape with that victory. Then there was a situation last week where they lost to New England 27-25. They lost to one of the worst teams in the NFL. They lost to one of the worst quarterbacks playing at that time in Mac Jones. The Bills, again, have looked below average. They have not lived up to expectation in four of their seven games of the season. When you speak about losing to the New York Jets, where you had Josh Allen being outplayed by Zach Wilson on a night where that should have been deflating for the New York Jets because they lost their Messiah who was going to take them to the heaven of winning a Super Bowl and Aaron Rodgers with their torn Achilles. They couldn't take advantage the Bills of that situation. Then they were sluggish in a game in London against Jacksonville. Lucky to win against the Giants and losing, again, to one of the worst teams in the league in the um, in the New England Patriots. So in terms of every team has a bad performance, every team has a couple of bad performances, it's almost like the Bills are getting to the point where they've used up all of their, well, it's just a bad game and a long season in the NFL. When do we now start equating, wait a minute now, if they've been below expectations more time than meeting expectations what type of Buffalo Bills are we getting? Are we getting the Buffalo Bills who lost to the New England Patriots? Or are we, are we, um, are the Buffalo Bills closer to the team that beat the Miami Dolphins? Where are we going? What's happening? What's going on concerning that? So look, the Bills are, um, got some injuries on defense. When you speak about their uh, middle linebacker, Matt Milano, defensive end, Daquan Jones, cornerback Tredavious White, all being out for the season. We have a situation where over the past three games, uh, the team, speaking of the Bills, have averaged only five and a half points in the first three quarters of each game, which is the second lowest in the league. So, you know, this is a situation where they're getting off slowly. And yes, you can sit there and we can speak about the fact that uh, the Bills on offense need Josh Allen to play hero ball or Josh Allen is playing hero ball which is not being effective for the Buffalo Bills as far as consistently doing things on offense. When you take a look, it's either going to be Josh Allen making a play out of his ass, throwing to Stephon Diggs, or it's bust. But who else is going to step up? I'm still looking for Gabe Davis to do something. I'm still looking for the running game with James Cook to do something. I'm still looking for a little bit more diversity. I'm still looking for a little bit more, uh, shall we say, um, more running plays than they have been doing. A little bit more of a balanced offense. That's what I'm looking for for the Buffalo Bills. And so far, I haven't seen it. And when the Bills have gotten themselves in trouble, when the Bills have lost their games, when the Bills have underachieved, when the Bills have looked average, when the Bills have looked sloppy, when the Bills have looked underwhelming on offense, it's because they are having Josh Allen run around, kind of like be the Caleb Williams for USC in college football, run around and try to make plays out out of his ass. This ain't college. He ain't Caleb Williams. And this ain't uh, Brett Favre uh, playing football here. Josh Allen, the problem is the Buffalo Bills, because of their offense, they need Josh Allen to do this. They need to have Josh Allen do these things. Is that sustainable? Because right now, look, against New England this past uh, Sunday, Allen, he went two for 10 with an interception on throws traveling 15 or more yards downfield. He completed his completion percentage 
for those, those throws this season is 46% with seven interceptions, which already matches his second most in any season. He had seven in 2021 and nine in 2018. But on those passes, he's also thrown six such touchdowns. So there's the conundrum. You're going to lose if you have Josh Allen play the way that he's playing. But then you're also that also gives you the best chance on offense to be successful if Josh Allen is going to play that way. So where do we go? What, what, what are the crossroads right here? Do we go a left? Do we go a right? What's going on with the Buffalo Bills? Again, I would try to, again, establish, establish a running game. The closer you can get the 50-50 the better off you're going to be. That's with the Buffalo Bills I would try to establish because I'm going to end you with this. I'm going to leave you with this when it comes to the Buffalo Bills. And I've asked this question before the season started. Is this the last Buffalo Bills team the way it is right now? Is this going to be the team that's going to, if, if they don't make the, or if, they, if they're going to make the playoffs, if, if they don't at least, hmm, what should be the expectation for this Bill team, Bills team? If they don't at least get to the AFC Championship, would losing to the Kansas City football team, would that be kosher? Do the Buffalo Bills have to make it to the Super Bowl for something not to happen? Because it's the window, the window for the Buffalo Bills, how fast is it closing? For every team, the window is closing for the most part. But you have some teams on the Ascension, but when you're speaking about the Bills and the success that they've had over the last three years, even though they have conked out in the uh, playoffs, that memorable game against the Kansas City Chiefs where they lost in overtime, was that the pinnacle, was that the summit of this Bills the way it is construed right now? Not just from a player standpoint, but also from a coaching standpoint? I'm just asking the question. It's too early in the season now be sitting there talking about, you know, what's going to be happening, you know, 10, 11, 12 weeks down the road. But I'm just saying, you know, every team has that window of opportunity. And most of them don't last very long unless you have a quarterback like Tom Brady and a coach like Bill Belichick. So for this team in Buffalo, who has had so much success over the past three years, after four years, again, if they underachieve, what changes should be made or what changes are going to be spoken about should there be changes made now yes a lot of stuff comes into play in terms of injuries and how they would lose in the playoffs and all these other all these machinations that we are not even close to um, uh, putting into the stew to bring the meal of what we did need to do about the Buffalo Bills and again we're just right now halfway through the month of October so nothing in concrete nothing the, the, these discussions should not be had just yet, even after this loss to the um, Miami Dolphins. But I'm just saying, for the Buffalo Bills and Buffalo Bills fan, this might be, this should be, this could be your best and last chance to do something. And right now, as of right now, they're squandering it. Still a lot of, still a lot of football to be played. Plenty of time to turn things around. They have the quarterback. They have the coach. They have the experience. They have the wide receiver. They have the uh, means to do so. They have the division to do so. I'm just saying, um, you know, put that on the back burner and we'll revisit what to do about the Buffalo Bills when that time comes. All right, I'm going to go with a little boogie break. I got to play a little Levi Stubbs, man. I got to get into a little baby. I need your loving. I need, I need to do that. 
I need to do that. I, I need to get me into a little, little Levi stuff because when we come back, we're going to be discussing what's going on in uh, college football. That's what we're going to be doing. Want to be discussing some things going down with that. I want to uh, bring up, even though I know Colorado didn't play last uh, week, I, I want to bring up Deion Sanders. I want to bring up uh, Lane, excuse me, I want to bring up um, Lincoln Riley, and I want to bring up James Franklin. Three, These three guys have got me thinking. These three guys have got me asking questions, especially when it comes to Lincoln Riley and Deion Sanders in terms of should someone, a persona like a Deion Sanders, should he be coaching at a school like Southern California? And should a coach like Lincoln Riley be coaching at a school in a football program like Colorado? I'm going to entertain that. And James Franklin, again, coming up small against Ohio State. Where do we go? What do we do with James Franklin? And what did that mean in terms of the definition of what the Penn State football program is all about? Because right now, James Franklin needs some loving. He's got to have all the fans loving. Because if the night echoes your name, sometimes I wonder, will I ever be the same? Oh, yeah. Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Sing it, Levi. Sing it, Obi. Sing it, Duke. Sing it, Lawrence. Woo, man, that voice, Levi Stubbs. Good Lord have mercy. Again, I've always said there's certain voices that have graced our ears, our minds, our consciousness. That if I had their, if I had their voices... I would never talk. All I would do was sing. You know, like Eddie Murphy with um, uh, Elvis when he was in his movies? Fuck it, let him sing all the dialogue because he couldn't act. Me in life, man, if I had a voice like Levi Stubbs, if I had a voice like Marvin Gaye, if I had a voice like Donny Hathaway, if I had a voice like, well, maybe not Otis Redding because Otis is a, him and, him and James Brown, I think my voice would disintegrate. But man, I tell you, if I had, if I had Levi Stubbs' voice, I would never talk. All I would do was sing. Could you imagine me doing a podcast by singing? Wendell's World in Sports, y'all. Welcome back to the show. Those Buffalo Bills, sugar pie. Okay, you know what I mean. But Marvin, mm, 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 mm. I've been reading a book. When I was on my cruise, I read a book. Um, Gerald Posner wrote a book about Motown and um, wrote about some of the 
deceitfulness and the underhandedness. Basically, what you got out of that book was Barry Gordy as a human being, as a louse, is a scumbag. And uh, basically, Diana Ross, she's a cunt and a whore and a selfish psychopath. I don't know how Diana Ross is now. I don't know how Barry Gordy is right now. I mean, you know, as you get older and you've achieved the things that you want to achieve, you just kind of mellow out and, and you don't need to fight anymore and, you know, this, that and the other. Maybe your insecurities kind of go away because you've made it. Your dreams have been rewarded in terms of when you first get into the music business or when you first start this journey for you to be having fame and fortune and all those type of things. So maybe in their old age, Barry, Gordy, and Diana Ross have mellowed. But while they were on the climb to stardom, to superstardom, and then being relevant as superstars, or in Barry Gordy's case, being a uh, mogul, being a pioneer, being a, an entrepreneur, being a businessman, these people were absolute fucking scumbags. I mean, absolute scumbags. I mean, especially Diana Ross. We've, we've heard stories about Diana Ross before. What a fucking bitch that she was. And that the term diva. I mean, there's certain terms for diva. There's certain levels of diva. So I guess diva, you got Mariah Carey, you got Aretha Franklin, you got this. But um, diva, I mean, diva's kind of a playful word, I guess. Oh, you know, Mariah Carey, this, that, and the other. She wants rose petals on her sheets and this, that, and the other. There's absurdities with that. But Diana Ross... I mean, her divaness was just being a fucking bitch. That fucking bitch, man. What she did to Flo Ballard, unfucking forgivable. Her and Barry Gordy, unfucking forgivable. And we always heard stories, or I've read stories, or I've watched documentaries. So it's not just Gerald Posner having the author of this book having a uh, having an axe to grind with Motown. It's not that oh Barry Gordy did me wrong or Diana Ross did, did me wrong. So out of spite, I'm gonna go ahead and write this book and talk about what what the horrible human beings that they are and and and, and uh, bend it one way. No, I've heard stories from multitudes of people about what a bitch and what a cunt and what a whore, what a slut. What a selfish, egotistical piece of shit that Diana Ross was um, moving up the moving up the ranks to uh, where she was now. And watching the documentary about her in the Supremes, one of the things I'm very happy about is the fact that uh, Diana Ross's greatest achievements were with Mary Wilson and Flo Ballard, despite the fact that she did everything humanly possible to destroy their lives so she could be so she could reach superstardom. Again, what she did to Flo Ballard was fucking unforgivable. The most sexiest woman outside of uh, Tammy Terrell walking through Motown, Flo Ballard, the best voice of the Supremes. What Diana Ross and Barry Gordy did to her, unforgivable. Unforgivable. Hey, look, man, when, when the time comes, you don't have to answer to me for what you did, but hopefully when Diana Ross hits the pearly gates... Um, and she gets, and she goes to, I don't know, one of the disciples who's going to determine whether she's going to go to the ultimate until she, until she goes to the, uh, when she goes to, um, you know, eternal happiness, when that's going to be decided, hopefully Flo Ballard will be waiting on her along with Mary uh, Wilson saying, yeah, bitch. Uh-huh. Yeah. You want to get into the, uh. You want to get into heaven after what you did to us? After what you did to her? After what you did to Flo? Uh-uh. You've got some questions to answer, biatch. Mm-mm. A lot of other people, too. 
that was a very interesting book. I'm sorry, I kind of got off uh, track a little bit, but yeah. Baby, I need your loving. Got, got to have all of your loving. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you can be with us. College football, two coaches similar in many ways, finding it hard to meet expectations. James Franklin, the head coach of Penn State, Lincoln Riley, the head coach of USC, they're similar in so many ways. I mean, when James Franklin hit the scene, when he left Vanderbilt to become the head coach of um, uh, Penn State and now Lincoln Riley, two young, wonderkin, attractive personalities taking over two powerful college football programs that needed um, that needed that, that needed a, a spark, that needed to get out of some 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 bad times, that needed to be turned around. And they were going to be, really, when you think about James Franklin, who I know is 51 years old, and I think Lincoln Riley just turned 40, but these were the guys who were supposed to be the next great coaches. Or when the older generation of coaches retired, when Bob Stoops and Nick Saban and Mac Brown and Brian Kelly and Urban Myers, when these guys finally left the stage, left the, um, left the uh, stage, that the people who, or the coaches who were going to replace them as the cream of the crop, the top of the line, the fruit of the loom, and all these type of things were going to be James Franklin and were going to be Lincoln Riley. So far, they have not got there. They were going to be the next group of coaches. I can name Kirby Smart. I can name Luke Fickle. Remember when he was with Cincinnati? I can name Ryan Day with Ohio State. Dan Lemming is one of those guys. Steve Sarkeesian being the coach of Texas. Matt Campbell, who was supposed to be taking the Michigan job once Jim Harbaugh flamed out because he was what he was doing at Iowa State. Billy Napier, when he was down there in the uh, mid-tier schools and he was going to take over Florida and, and resurrect that program to bring it up to the levels of an Urban Meyer or a Steve Spurrier. James Franklin... And Lincoln Riley were supposed to be part of that group, part of the new generation, part of the next generation. Nick Saban can't coach forever. Mac Brown can't coach forever. Marvin Meyer is no longer coaching as of right now. So who are going to be taking their places as the superstars of coaching in college football? James Franklin and Lincoln Riley were supposed to be two of those guys. Now, both are not living up to expectations. Reasonable expectations, I might add. Not giving up on them. Not saying that you need to fire either of them. But so far, what they were brought in to do, they haven't done yet. Now, whose fault it is for placing those expectations? James Franklin knew what he was getting into when he took the job at Penn State, just like um, uh, just like uh, Lincoln Riley knew what he was getting into when, A, he took that job at USC. And both Franklin and Riley knew the expectations, reasonable or unreasonable, when they find when they sign those fat uh, contracts. Well, you got a guy in Lincoln Riley who's supposed to be making almost a hundred million dollars over a ten-year stretch, and then the contract extension that James Franklin signed. I'm sorry, expectations go along with high salaries. And for Penn State, Penn State is supposed to be a team that's supposed to be able to compete with the Michigans, that are supposed to be able to compete with the Ohio States, that they're supposed to be one of those football programs to bring it close or around the same level or close to the same level or at the same level that Joe Paterno had the Penn State Nittany Lions back in the late 70s and early 80s, in, 80, in the mid-80s, 
That's supposed to be the expectations for James Franklin. Is that reasonable? Is that fair? When you sign the contract extension that James Franklin signed, it doesn't matter. Lincoln Riley was supposed to be the guy, he was supposed to have the impact at USC that Urban Meyer had when he became the coach at Florida and then became the coach at at Ohio State. He was going to change everything in terms of what went down in the Pac-12. Again, this was before the Pac-12 ultimately dissolved and USC decided that they were going to go play football in the Big Ten or have their sports be in the Big Ten. But when Lincoln Riley was hired, this was a situation where, look, man, everybody else needs to up their game. Because before Lincoln Riley got there, football west of the Mississippi, unless you're in Eugene, Oregon, was lacking was irrelevant. No one cared. Pac-12 after dark, Pac-12 going to sleep. No one gave a damn. No one knew about Oregon State. No one knew about Washington State. No one really cared about UCLA. No one knew anything about Arizona and Arizona State. Hell, I lived in Tempe for, uh, how long did I live in Arizona? It was from 99 to 2003. So yeah, I lived almost four years in Arizona. I lived four years in Phoenix, Arizona. No one gave a damn about the Arizona State football, basketball, wrestling, baseball, soccer programs. They didn't. Lincoln Riley's hiring at USC was going to change all that. Just like when Urban Meyer became the head coach at Ohio State, all of a sudden now some of these programs that have been dormant, some of these football programs in the Big Ten that really weren't doing anything, the conference itself as a football program had come closer to irrelevance than relevance, all of a sudden now they knew these coaches in Michigan, these coaches at Michigan State, these coaches at Penn State, these coaches at Indiana, these coaches at Northwestern, all of a sudden now they knew that they had to up their game because they had a guy in Urban Meyer who had done what he did at Florida, went toe-to-toe with Nick Saban, was a recruiting maniac, was going to bring in recruits. He was going to raise a boatload of money. He was going to upgrade the facilities. So these athletic directors, these presidents from these other Big Ten universities, They knew that they had to up their game. That was supposed to be the same thing with Urban Meyer. Urban Meyer was going to come into USC. He took Caleb Williams. He had all these high recruits. He already had Malachi Nelson, the top-tier quarterback, who was going to supplant Caleb Williams. Nelson committed to Oklahoma but followed Um, but followed uh, Lincoln Riley to USC, similar to what Caleb Williams did. So this was going to be a message to the Oregons of Phil Knight. This was going to be a message to the Washington States. This was going to be the message to the UCLA who owned the same uh, city as uh, USC. This was going to be a message to those guys to up their games. This was going to be a message to Utah to start being more aggressive in terms of recruiting. This was going to be a message to Arizona and Arizona State to um, upgrade their facilities. The hiring of Lincoln Riley was supposed to be that type of impact. And despite the fact that the really doesn't make any difference because you have some of these Big 12 schools, or excuse me, some of these Pac-12 schools going to the Pac-12, or excuse me, the Big 12 and the Big 10. So that didn't come to fruition. But so far, USC has been... I don't know, just disappointing. 
I guess you could say, and that's the same thing with Penn State. Penn State came into this game this last weekend against Ohio State. This was going to be the year, right? Ohio State going through a transition at the quarterback, not as potent, not as powerful, not as uh, monstrous, not as bad, bad Leroy Brownish as they were in other years. Penn State came into the game ranked number seven in the nation, unbeaten at 6-0. This was supposed to be the best team that Franklin had since he was the coach at Penn State. They had themselves a five-star recruit who was a transfer, so now the Sean Clifford era at uh, quarterbacking at Penn State, the mediocrity that uh, ensued over four years with Sean Clifford being the the, uh, quarterback at that school for the Nittany Lions, that was supposed to be out the window, right? Now this is the year that Penn State was supposed to uh, really battle and really have the best opportunity to beat Ohio State before Ohio State kind of raised their levels in the upcoming years to get back to where they are, get back to where they've been year in and year out. Ohio State this season is good. They're very good on defense. But again, they're not one of the better Ohio State teams under Ryan Day. And guess what? 20 to 12. The best chance that you had to beat Ohio State before they turned it back up to becoming one of the elites for real, you blew it. Drew Adler, Penn State's prize sophomore quarterback, what was he, 18 for 42, 191 yards? He wasn't good. Penn State had 240 total yards on offense, one of 16 on third down. And one of the third down conversions from Penn State came with 45 seconds left to go in, in regulation. How inept were they on offense? Wendell, how inept were they on offense? Let me tell you. Eight drives consisted of four plays or fewer. They punted nine times, less than two yards per rush. And the first trip into the red zone came with a minute 12 remaining against a prevent defense. This was not supposed to way, this was not supposed to be the way things went down for Penn State and James Franklin against Ohio State this season. We never know the barometer, the measuring stick of where Penn State is as a program. It doesn't come against beating Northwestern. It doesn't come against beating Indiana. It doesn't come against beating a school in the MAC in the preseason. It doesn't come against Michigan State. It comes when you're speaking about playing a top 10 school or your two Big Ten rivals, which is Ohio State and which is Michigan. So since Franklin has become the head coach of Penn State over the past 10 years, he's 1-9 against Ohio State. He's 3-16 against top 10 teams. And he's a combined 1-13 versus Ohio State and Michigan when they're ranked in the top 10. Not good. Not good. He's coached 13 seasons at Vanderbilt and Penn State. We're still waiting for that guy that was supposed to be um, the wonderkin, that was supposed to be doing all these great things. Now look. Penn State has four 11-win seasons since 2016 under Franklin, right? So he's not bad enough to fire, but he's also not good enough to say, this is the guy that's going to bring us to the promised land. This is the guy that's going to um, meet and reach our expectations. So that kind of leads me to this. Because I've heard my man Eric G and Coach Jones talk about this on the Sports Animals, 97.1 when I listen to their program, 11 to 2 Central Standard Time, where they speak about Mike Gundy. And people are talking about, oh, Mike Gundy can't do this, and Mike Gundy can't do that, and Mike Gundy needs to be fired, and Mike Gundy's been around too long, and I'm no longer a man of 40, he's no longer a man of 40, and all that type of nonsense. The the G-man makes up a good point. If you're not going to have 
Gundy be your coach? Who's that coach that's going to be that's going to elevate Oklahoma State to where you think they should be winning championships, that they should be competing with the top-tier recruits that go to Texas, that go to Oklahoma? Who's going to be that coach? Who's going to be that guy? Because Nick Saban ain't walking through that door. You don't want Urban Meyer walking through that door. I mean, yeah, Boone Pickens has got some money, but that doesn't equate the fact that you're still living, that you still have a campus in Stillwater, Oklahoma. So if you're going to be going up against traditional powers, not just at football programs, but when you're going up against cities like Austin, Texas, Los Angeles, California, Miami, Florida, some of the schools, Tallahassee, some of the schools that are recruiting these guys, and it's either going to be Austin, Texas, or Stillwater. I'm sorry, huh? What? So, again, if you're going to find a coach that's better than Mike Gundy, who's going to be, who has, who knows these obstacles, who knows these landmines, who knows these expectations, who know how the sausage is made, who is that going to be? And that's the same thing with James Franklin. I don't like to say, oh, Penn State, uh, Franklin, uh, three and six, who else are you going to get? Who's going to be better? I don't know. Maybe we need to kind of look and kind of uh, maybe look and say, well, what really is Penn State in terms of a football program? Because, look, he did a great job in terms of what he did when he took over this program coming off of the Jerry Sandusky scandal. Right? He's in the second year of a 10-year contract worth $85 million, so I don't think you can buy him out. Don't think... The alumni don't think um, Penn State had that type of cash. So so where are we going to go with this? What are we going to do with this? What's going to be happening with this? Where are we going with this with James Franklin uh, as far as the coach of, of uh, Penn State? And what type of program should we be looking at when we look at Penn State? Because I'm telling you right now, if you're going to try to put them on the same level as traditional collegiate powers, historical powers and elites like Ohio State or Oklahoma or USC or Alabama or Nebraska or Texas, you're sadly mistaken. You're, you're not thinking correctly. That ain't going to happen. This was a situation with Penn State. Penn State became Penn State because of one man. One man only. And that was Joe Paterno. When you take a look at Ohio State, when you take a look at Oklahoma, when you take a look at USC, when you take a look at Nebraska, when you take a look at the traditional powers of college football, the consistency of how they win, the consistency how they do things, the way they got to that mountaintop, the way they got their faces on that Mount Rushmore of great college football programs is because of the multitude of coaches that have done well. Notre Dame did well with Nuke Rotney, Era Parsegi, and Lou Holtz. Ohio State did well with Woody Hayes and Urban Meyer. Um, Alabama did well with Bear Bryant, Nick Saban, Gene Perkins. Oklahoma did well with Barry Switzer, Bud Wilkinson, Bob Stoops, and then Lincoln Riley. Multitude of coaches to make it so that while a Bud Wilkinson, while a Nuke Rotney, while a Paul Bear Bryant, while a Bud Wilkinson, while a, um, um, oh my goodness gracious, uh, the, the guy for USC, who, John McKay, while John McKay, John Robinson, Pete Carroll, while you've had the multitude of coaches, Tom Osborne, um, with, um, Nebraska, while you've had all of these coaches coming through, you had that foundation of the first coach who put that program on the map as being a college football elite, 
the other coaches, as great as they were, they didn't define the program in its totality. When you think about the greatness of Oklahoma, it's because of Bud Wilkinson. It's not because of Barry Switzer. It's not because of Bob Stoops. When you take a look at the greatness of Ohio State, known as a great football program, it's not because of Urban Meyer. It's because of Woody Hayes. When you take a look at Alabama in terms of its success as a football traditional historical power, it's not because of Dick Saban. It's because of Bear Bryant. When you take a look at USC, the greatness of that program is not because of Pete Carroll. That's not, Pete Carroll doesn't identify that. He's just one of the coaches in the chain that was set up by the greatness of John McKay. So when you take a look at Penn State outside of Joe Paterno, what you got? When you take a look at Bobby Bowden of Florida State, what you got? When you take a look at Clemson outside of maybe Dabo Swinney, what you got? Put in Miami as one of those elites because you had Howard Stellenberger and Jimmy Johnson. But what I'm saying is if we expect to have Penn State at the same level as some of these traditional powers, big mistake, man, big mistake. I think a level above, excuse me, a level below those programs, that's where Penn State should be. So I think in that regard, James Franklin is doing a great job. And yes, maybe could have a little bit more consistency. Maybe it stings a lot more when you think about Penn State, the program that they have, that someone like Marvin Harrison, who was basically born and raised in the backyard in Philadelphia, why is he going to Ohio State when he should be going to Penn State? Those type of recruiting battles, those type of recruiting wars. As far as a national program is concerned, as far as a national recruiting base is concerned, Penn State is never going to be able to compete with the Michigans and the Ohio States. They're just not going to be able to. But at the very least, maybe a reasonable thing should be, hey, man, when we have someone who's a five-star recruit, four-star recruit in, a, in, in, in the Pennsylvania area, we need to be doing a lot better. We need to be doing more in western Pennsylvania. We need to be doing more in Philadelphia. We need to be doing more in Pittsburgh. We need to be doing more around that region. And that's not to say that we need to get every recruit that we go after who is also being recruited by the Ohio States and by the Michigans and by the Oklahomas and by the Alabamas and by the Miamis and by the USC's. I'm not saying that we need to get each and every one of those because they're in our backyards, but we need to come closer to winning more of those than we've been losing in the past 10 years since Franklin became the coach. I wanted to say this about um, Colorado and... USC and the coaches and the swap for those coaches. When you take a look at USC, now Lincoln Riley, for the first time, is starting to feel a little bit of pressure. Um, losing two in a row after being embarrassed by Notre Dame, 48 points. Notre Dame, how long many games does it take for them to score 48 points? Four or five games? They scored 48 against, um, they scored 48 against uh, USC, Notre Dame. Then, the next week, USC loses to Utah, 34-32. They allow the walk-on quarterback, Bryson Barnes, to go 14-23 for 235 yards, three touchdowns. The running game had over 200 yards, averaging over five yards per carry. Again, Alex Gibbs in that defense. Um, Lincoln Riley's boy didn't get the job done. The defense has been atrocious. The defense has been inept. The defense has been underwhelming. The defense has been, has been embarrassing for the USC squad especially a squad like USC that had expectations to compete for a spot in the college football playoff berth. That is now done. They're 6-2. and two. 
They've wasted the opportunity for Caleb Williams to win a second Heisman Trophy, the presumptive number one pick in the NFL draft. So after 22 games, Lincoln Riley is 17-5 as the coach of the Trojans, right? Three of those losses came to Utah. And you might be saying, well, 17-5, that's pretty good. There's his predecessor, who they couldn't get rid of fast enough, Clay Helton. You know what his record was after 22 games? 17-5. Again, Lincoln Riley was supposed to have the same impact, not just on the Pac-12 conference, but also schools, football programs west of the Mississippi. He was going to have the same type of impact that Urban Meyer had on the SEC and Big Ten Conference when he became the head coaches, when he became the head coach at Florida and Ohio State. So he signed a contract, $100 million over 10 years, and after the loss, he felt the expectations that had worn down his team. He suggested that the narrative about winning championships is media-driven, and USC doesn't come in every week talking about winning a national championship. Well, then what the hell are you doing as a coach of USC? That might not be stated on your contract, Lincoln, but when you're making over $100 million for 10 years, that's kind of like um, something that doesn't need to be said as a, pre- as a requirement. You're getting there talking about not, I'm not worried about him. We're not, we're not coming in talking about winning championships. Hell, we need to go ahead and rehire Clay Helton. We need to buy you out and save us some money and get Clay Helton. If that's going to be the attitude, because our attitude is we want to win championships. We want to compete for championships. Hence, we're giving you a $100 million contract and at the time made you the highest paid coach in college football. What else are we going to give you $100 million for? To make sure that you have a high graduation rate amongst your players? That they become honorable human beings outside of football? That somehow, some way that they become doctors and lawyers and entrepreneurs and find a cure for cancer and solve the problems in Israel and the Middle East? We didn't hire you for those things. That's all gravy. We hired you to win football games. Hence, we hired you to win national championships. <laughs> you can't make $100 million over 10 years. You can't have that type of salary with the perks that come with that and then say, oh yeah, well, you, we don't talk about winning championships. What the hell do you talk about? <laughs> in fact, he told reporters in July of 2022 that he, didn't, that he and the staff didn't leave Oklahoma to play for second. Well, that's pretty good because at USC right now, you're not even playing for second. You're playing for third or fourth or fifth, depending upon how you do against uh, Washington and um, Washington and Oregon. Come on, man. What the hell's up with that? So, look, he didn't make the players uh, eligible. He didn't have the players available to talk after the game against USC. I mean, I'm sorry, man. These guys are now getting NIL deals. So, you know, they need to get in front of the camera and start talking. If the Arizona Cardinals or if the Chicago Bears, whoever has the number one pick in the draft, is going to be selecting Caleb Williams, Caleb Williams is going to have to learn to get in front of the microphone after losses and start talking about it because if he's going to be going to the Arizona Cardinals or whoever has the number one pick and he's going to be the quarterback his first year in the NFL, there's going to be a lot of days. There's going to be a lot of Sundays and Mondays and Thursdays where he's going to have to get up in front of the camera next year and get up in front of the press in front of the public and explain why the team sucks. So I don't know why the team is losing in what he can do. So look, I, I, I think this is a situation where, you know, people have made the, people have said, hey, you know what, maybe, 
you know, this is the first time Lincoln Riley, an Oklahoma guy, you go to USC, maybe he doesn't understand the expectations, this, that, and the other. And I'm thinking to myself, everything that's surrounding, we're talking about LA, we're talking about glitz, we're talking about celebrities. Who's bringing that type of environment? Who's bringing that type of atmosphere? Who's bringing that type of feeling? Who's bringing that to the college football experience? Deion Sanders in Boulder. Deion Sanders is running that program in Boulder, Colorado, like it's located in Los Angeles, California, or New York City, or South Beach, Miami, Florida. That's the, the my, LA is would be so Dion, so Coach Prime, right? Everywhere he goes, he's being filmed. He has another documentary about the season. He, he has that coming out. He's writing a motivational book. You see him on um, camera. You see him on television. You can't get enough of Dion, right? They're shoving Dion down our throats. He's doing all this in Boulder, Colorado, with a team that went one in eleven next year, uh, last year. Now, that might add to the intrigue of him turning around one of the worst programs in college football over the past couple of years. But wouldn't that also be something? Wouldn't that also be something? Wouldn't that also be intriguing? Wouldn't that also be a story? Wouldn't that also get uh, people's attention if he was doing that at USC? Coach Prime goes Hollywood? I just think the match between Los Angeles and Dion or Coach Prime would be perfect. I'm sorry. I find that match, Coach Prime in Hollywood, better than Coach Prime in Jackson State. Coach Prime in HBCU. Coach Prime in Hollywood is much more of a better fit for Coach Prime than the other two um, uh, things I just mentioned. And in reverse, I think Lincoln Riley who comes off as me as kind of like an all shucks type of a guy. Not saying that he's country, not saying that he's dumb, or not saying that he's, well, gosh and golly, I'm out here in Los Angeles, California. Hey, where did the Beverly Hillbillies hang out? <laughs> I'm, not saying, I'm not saying he's some okie doke. I'm not saying he's some I'm not saying he's some stupid evangelical who's like, I think Donald Trump is the answer to all of our problems. I'm not saying I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that Lincoln Riley is one of these dumbasses who sit around talking about, I sure do like me some Marjorie Taylor Greene. I sure think Ron DeSantis, God damn it, I think that he's doing a hell of a job down there in Florida. Damn right, what the hell's up with these African-American studies? I'm not saying that at all. And by the way, that was just a cheap shot on those two, three people. I just wanted to do that. So, you know, that was, that was more in me than anybody else. I'm sorry, not really. But, um, so, yeah, so I'm not saying that Lincoln Riley is some backwards hick or something like that, but I I just think when you speak about his personality, when you speak about uh, those type of things, I think that he would be better suited for something like a Boulder, Colorado, where he would still be able to get recruits, where he would still be able to build a strong offense. But I just think that the, the better fit for the environment. Could you imagine, if you if you think that players want to come to Boulder, Colorado, players from the urban areas, from the black communities of Florida and Texas and such, if they want to go to Boulder, Colorado and be able to have to deal with that bullshit that come from being in a place where less than 1% of the uh, population is African-American, if you think that 
if Dion can pull that off to get players to come there and to thrive and to strive and to get NIL deals and build a program with that, just think what he would do in a place like Los Angeles. Just think if Dion could come in and be Coach Prime and do all this stuff into a kid's, uh, talking to a kid into a kid's parents and say, oh yeah, by the way, we're going to be, your kid is going to be playing football at USC. Your kid is going to have the opportunity to be around that environment. Whether he's talking to a kid in Southern California, Northern California, Washington State, Texas, Western Pennsylvania. You're speaking about USC having that national reach. Yeah, because of the success, especially with the quarterbacks that Lincoln Riley has had. Yeah, the best quarterbacks are going to be um, uh, intrigued and interested in going to USC. But imagine Coach Prime. Imagine Coach Prime in USC. Mm, That would be something else. That would be something I would absolutely love to see. And I think as time goes on, and and I'm not saying that Lincoln Riley is a bust. I don't know yet. He's, He's not even two years into his tenure at USC. Maybe he'll get it. Maybe the pressure once he gets situated and once he understands and gets it and gets a little bit more comfortable and a little bit more of an understanding of what the expectations are in the press and the environment and the community and such, that he's a smart guy, that maybe he'll be able to figure it out. So who knows? But as of right now, Coach Prime in L.A., Lincoln Riley in Boulder, I think that would be a better fit for each of them. Uh, right now. I don't think that Lincoln Riley is going to be quitting. I don't think that he's going to be leaving the hills or anything like that. But again, I just thought that, uh, just thought about that. Coach Prime goes Hollywood. Something else. Um, I'm going to bogey a little bit. Let me play a little Kim Weston. Let me let me play a little Tammy Terrell and let me play a little Marvin Gaye because especially with Tammy Terrell, ooh, I would need some I would need some of her love enough if I was still around. I want to get to the NBA. There's some storylines that I'm going to be paying attention to this season. I'll tell you what they are. Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports. Sing it, Tammy. Sing it, Marvin, because Dolan, baby, I need your loving. Last segment of the podcast. Last segment of the program. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Whew, Lord have mercy. That Tammy Terrell was something else, boy. Man, the woman could sing and fine, 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 fine. I've always said before, man, and I'll say it and I'll say it and I'll say it again. When you speak about the sexiest and the prettiest females that that, 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 that the artists 
from Motown, number one, without question, with a bullet, was Tammy Terrell. Number two was uh, was uh, Mary Wilson. And number three was uh, Mary Wells, followed by Flo Ballard. Flo Ballard was the sexiest somebody who ever walked through the halls of Motown, followed, followed by Mary Wells and Tammy Terrell. But the prettiest one was Mary Wilson, followed by Tammy Terrell and Mary Wells and Flo Ballard. But just overall, when you bring in all of those aspects, Tammy Terrell, Tammy Terrell, Tammy Terrell. Mm. One of the more tragic figures of Motown also, dying at the age of 1945 to 1970. So, yeah, dying at the age of uh, 25 or 26 or something like that. The relationship, the volatile physical abuse that she suffered with uh, David Ruffin, uh, that piece of shit, man. Man could sing, but man, you speaking about an egomaniac piece of shit, David Ruffin. David Ruffin and the Temptations, that's what he wanted to be called. But, uh, you know, David Ruffin beat the shit out of her. I lost a lot of respect for uh, James Brown. Um, Tammy Terrell was a backup singer for James Brown. Uh, they were intimate with each other. So one night, James Brown would abuse her. And then one night after a concert or after a show, she didn't do something that he liked while he was on stage. So as soon as the show was over, he raced off the stage to Tammy Terrell and beat the living shit out of her. I mean, beat, beat her badly. I mean, Ike Turner was taking notes on how to do that with Tina. James Brown beat her so bad. Bobby Brown was like, damn, James, what the fuck's up with that? The beating was so severe. Tammy was like, I can't take this no more. I mean, this is, this is just another level. If he, if he, if the next level is he's going to kill me. So you're speaking about tragic figures. Uh, when you speak about a Tammy Terrell, uh, just gorgeous, just absolutely beautiful. But again, read a lot about Motown, know a lot about Motown and this, that, and the other. And uh, yeah, it's just just horrible. And you speak about someone like Marvin Gaye, who the way that he grew up, and you have Tammy Terrell on stage in Norfolk, Virginia, falling into his arms, collapsing into his arms because of her beginning of having a brain, a brain tumor or her or her uh, her illness. And on stage, falling into the arms of Marvin Gaye. And um, when she died, Marvin basically, who was already a fragile personality to begin with, who was dealing with his own problems, with his family, and with drugs, and with everything else. I mean, as an individual, as a human being, he was a pretty screwed up guy, I think, to his upbringing and his father and such. I mean, he kind of went off the deep end. He kind of, for three years, basically disappeared started getting more heavily into drugs and other vices that, uh, you know, basically led him to be a recluse. So, uh, yeah, tragic, tragic stories. And, of course, someone like a Marvin Gaye, Barry Gordy, really didn't do anything to help him, really didn't know if there was anything to be done to help Marvin Gaye. Again, he was so far gone by the time that he was a, a full-fledged adult that I don't know if there was anything that could be done, prayer, church, mental health, psychology, whatever. I think Marvin was just too far gone from the get-go, but Barry didn't do anything. He didn't do anything to alleviate some of the uh, ills and some of the mental uh, problems that Marvin was going through. So there you go. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host. Wendell. Ooh, I love me some Tammy Terrell. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us again. 
the NBA season started, the Los Angeles Lakers. Here's the deal, man, because I know people are going to be speaking about because I know what the Los Angeles Lakers, and I know that this was supposed to be Anthony Davis's team, and now there's going to be a situation where after last night's game between the Denver Nuggets where Anthony Davis scoring 17 points in the first half and zero in the uh, second half that people are going to be getting all over an Anthony Davis. It's one game. One game. Calm down one game and it's the same thing if Anthony Davis which I predict the next game that he plays he's going to have a strong game because I'm quite sure he was embarrassed by the performance that he had in the second half so I'm quite sure in game number two I don't know who they play I don't know when they play I guess it's going to be Friday or I don't know who do they play I don't know but he's going to have a strong game and then people are going to be, hey, Anthony Davis. Hey, all right. Hey, Anthony Davis. Let's do start doing high fives. Hey, Anthony Davis. Let's start doing cartwheels. Hey, Anthony Davis. Blah, 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 blah. It's like, I'm not going to get into that stuff, man. There's 82 flipping games. 82 flipping games. And there's a lot to decide in terms of what we're going to be happening. So, look, Nikola Jokic looked awesome. The Nuggets looked awesome. The Lakers still trying to put things together. LeBron trying to get used to playing somewhere between 28 and 30 minutes a game. I don't know what the plan is going to be. You know, plans change as the season goes along. So, look, we got a whole lot of stuff. I am going to be intrigued if um, on how Anthony Davis now kind of holds the moniker, holds the, holds the title of being the man for the Los Angeles Lakers. And for the first time, I would say, what, in 20 years? Now going into year 21 that LeBron really not only has talked about, hey, you know what, time for us to pass the reins over to Anthony Davis, but I think the way the game plan is for him to be, to be, uh, you know, the minutes played and everything kind of shows that, yeah, it's time for Anthony Davis to um, carry the load for the Los Angeles Lakers, a team that made it to the Western Conference Finals. They were swept by the Denver Nuggets. I'm glad that the games were close, um, but then again, they did lose in four straight I don't know how that can be something to where everybody gets a participation trophy and orange slices and making them feel good about themselves because it was a four-game sweep in which the Lakers played competitively. I, I, don't, I don't know where that comes from as far as watch out for the Los Angeles Lakers. Gabe Vincent, nice uh, acquisition. The, the, the move that they made, resetting Austin Reeves, those were nice. Those were cool. Those were good. Those were solid. Those were positive. But that's all of a sudden now going to lead for them to be a real challenger for the uh, Denver Nuggets, especially when you're speaking about how loaded the West is. I'm interested to see how well the Oklahoma City Thunders do. I'm, I'm interested to see how the Sacramento Kings do. Two teams that I think that last year Sacramento surprised a lot of people getting the what fourth or third spot in the uh, Western Conference for the playoffs. I want to see if De'Aaron Fox and Sabonis and those guys can keep that uh, level of consistency and success going into the season. I'm interested in seeing if the Oklahoma City Thunder can do this season what the Sacramento Kings did last season in terms of making that jump to being a real playoff contender. When you have a top seven, top eight player in the league like, say, say Gilgis Alexander, who came off a very successful summer playing international basketball. When you have Chet Holmgren and see what he can do as a rim protector and somebody um, that can uh, help both offensively and defensively. The maturation of Josh Giddy, 
another guy who played well for his Australian national team during the summer. What type of carryover does that have once the NBA season starts though with the Oklahoma City Thunder? I'm interested to see. I'm interested in the Minnesota Timberwolves. What Anthony Edwards, the leap that he's going to make. Can he be a guy that can be a um, at least a second team all NBA type player? And how's that dynamic with Rudy Gobert and um, and Carl Anthony Towns going to do in, in, in year two and see how that works for the Minnesota Timberwolves and with a full year of Mike Connolly at the point guard, how's that going to work with the Minnesota Timberwolves? Of course, I think the main story for this NBA season, especially at the beginning, is going to be the play of the most talked about rookie to come into this league since LeBron James came in in 2003, more than Anthony Davis, more than Zion Williamson, I'm speaking about Victor Wembanyama, the number one pick from Paris, France, playing for the San Antonio Spurs. How's he going to do this season? What he's going to be doing this season? Now, I know that he's been playing very well in preseason. I know the highlights have been impressive. I know that the game against Miami, he was dominant. I saw a couple of games or highlights against the Golden State Warriors where he was very impressive on some plays. I'm interested to see, though, the consistency from Wimbanyana and what his first um, season will look like. There's going to be some ups. There's going to be some downs. He's going to be playing tonight against Dallas. The second game is going to be on Friday against Houston. Alfred Sengun, he's going to be going against. The third game is going to be against the uh, Clippers. And then he's going to be having a back-to-back in terms of home away for games four and five against the Phoenix Suns and his idol, Kevin Durant. So look, after they host the Mavs, the um, Mavericks and the Rockets, 15 of their next 17 games are going to be against teams that were above 500 this season. Some of the more notable games is going to be November 10th against Minnesota, going up against that ten, twin towers of Gobert and Towns. November 14th, I know that he played Chet Holmgren in the preseason, but they play Oklahoma City Thunder. It's going to be interesting to see those two guys go against each other on certain levels. And then, of course, on November 26th, He's going to be going up against the Denver Nuggets, the defending champion Denver Nuggets. Don't I highly doubt that he's going to be guarding Nikola Jokic, but we'll see how he does against Aaron Gordon, both offensively and defensively. So with Wembenyana, going to be very interesting. There's been some talk about the fact that his wingspan is so long and that his mobility for someone that size and with that wingspan, that there's a strong possibility that he could be getting some votes for defensive player of the year because for the first time for a lot of these guys when they're going to be playing that they're not going to, they they haven't been used to having to having go up against a guy like Wembenyana with his size with his agility and with his wingspan so because of that the rim protecting um the the, the pick and rolls where he switches uh, because of his length, because of his wingspan, because of his footwork, um, that he can be able to guard some of the perimeter play- players, not all, and maybe not all on a consistent basis, but that's going to lead him to uh, being a defensive marvel, a guy who can not only protect the rim despite his frail frailness in size, but also step out and be able to guard some of the perimeter players um, in the league. So because of that, that's going to be able to garner some MVP or some defensive player of the year votes. Look, this season, there's going to be some time where he's going to be looking foolish. Absolutely, positively foolish. It's going to be interesting when they play Philadelphia. Um, 
Joel Embiid, I guess, is going to really go after him. We'll see what happens. There's going to be some nights where Wimbanyana is going to look uh, out of touch, out of space, out of mind. And there's going to be some games where he's going to be looking dominant. The key is going to be how many games is he going to have where he's going to be looking foolish, how many games he's going to be looking dominant, and then everything else is going to be in between. So there's going to be a lot of games where he's going to be average, where he's going to be good, a lot more than when he's going to be dominant, or a lot more than games where he's going to be looking foolish and out of place. So I'm interested to see exactly what happens. Don't think that this is going to be a big move in terms of wins for the San Antonio Spurs. But it's just, this is just going to be about maturation and growing with the team. So those are just some of the things. Look, there's nothing new to report on James Harden. Either he's missing games because of a family situation. There were reports that he's missing games because of an illness to his mother. Also can't be taken out of the equation that he's missing games because, yes, his mom is, is sick, but also because of his, his um, it's not even a threat, his promise not to play for Daryl Morey anymore. And I, I don't know exactly how this is going to end up. Um, he's not in any kind of basketball shape, the reports are. So if you're the Clippers, if you're another team that's looking to get him, when do you get him? When do you want to get him? I don't know how Terrence Mann is holding things up, but if you're the Clippers and you want James Harden, uh, how long is it going to take for James Harden to get into the shape, get into the basketball shape, get into the position that you want him to be in when the Clippers start doing their thing? And especially you have to monitor Kawhi Leonard, you have to monitor Paul George in, in, in that situation with the Clippers. So, with Daryl Morey, I don't know what he's doing. I don't know what's happening. I don't know what's going on. There hasn't been any new news. Joel Embiid really hasn't said anything in terms of, hey, look, man, this thing has to be resolved because um, I'm getting a little bit pissed and I'm getting a little bit more, um, I, I'm getting more disillusioned at what we're doing as an organization. And you might want to uh, start seeing about my trade value because I'm not going to be doing this for that much longer. So there's no term, there's no timetable for Harden to return to the NBA. The NBA has this in-season tournament. Uh, 30 teams split up into six five-team groups. Don't know how this is going to go. Don't know how ambitious. I don't know how passionate these guys are going to be for it. The winning team gets $500,000 each while the runner-ups get 200,000. The Spurs are going to have more nationally televised games than any other team during the four-game group stage of the tournament, which takes place on seven November dates, four Fridays, which is which is the 3rd, 10th, 17th, and 24th, and three Tuesdays, which is November 14th, 21st, and 28th. The quarterfinals will be played December 4th and 5th at the higher-seeded team, and the semifinals and championship game will be December 7th and 9th in Las Vegas. I really don't have anything yay or nay to say about this again. Um, you People were speaking about, well, what about the play-in games for the playoffs? Well, at least these teams were playing to get into the playoffs, and now there's going to be even more meaning. There's going to be more meaningful reasons for teams to get into the playoffs after what they saw what the Miami Heat did going from a team that was in the play-in game to uh, being in the NBA Finals. But for this play-in game, I don't know what the incentive would be. I don't know exactly how the players are going to fall into that. I, I just don't know. 
I just don't know. So, and of course, we got, you know, other teams, the Milwaukee Bucks. Giannis signed a three-year, $186 million contract extension. The Bucks went out and got Damian Lillard. I'll get into all of that a little bit later. In fact, I'm going to save that for my next podcast to talk about some of these teams that are championship worthy. When you speak about the Boston Celtics, when you speak about the Milwaukee Bucks, when you speak about the... Um, when you speak about the the Phoenix Suns, even though Bradley Beal didn't play against the Golden State Warriors. The Golden State Warriors, what's going to be their situation moving forward and their chances to win a championship, compete for a championship. All of those things I will save for next my next podcast. My, I don't know, because my love is so strong for the NBA. And I love the NFL. I guess maybe it's a situation where maybe college football will not get my full attention depending upon what's going on but uh right now i'm just josh giddy happy about the nba being back and i cannot wait to talk about it so there you go all right i want to thank everybody for listening to the program wendell's world of sports i want to end with the little with a little four tops because again maybe i need your loving again we need to listen to levi stubbs as much as possible again i want everybody to have a safe and happy week again i want people to have those conversations with people who are different from you in every single way again i want you to learn again i want you to grow again i want you to be more tolerant again i want you to uh, love again i want you to unify again i want this world to have peace So I will never stop saying those things. I will never stop praying for those things. I will never stop wishing and hoping for those things until the day that I die. Don't do it for our generation. Do it for the younger generation. Love, peace, happiness, unity from one end of the globe to the other. Man, that's what we need. Wendell's World of Sports. Levi, Obi, Lawrence, Duke, get me out of here. Live in LA. Baby, I need your loving. Get me on out of here with some music. All right.
smile that you might see. 